you're not already turned there, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and invite you to stand as I read for us our text this morning. Uh, I, I continually put this be, uh, beginning with verse 24, but I am going to begin with verse 21 just to give us the larger context. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, where we read this, hear the word of the Lord. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore... God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. And all God's people said, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So in the reading of God's word, may we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. As I read these verses about the wrath of God, I can only turn my attention to the grace of God. What makes the grace of God so amazing and so comforting is realized only to the extent that we understand the wrath of God. When a person comes to grips with what is his standing before God at any given moment, a sinner worthy of God's judgment and condemnation, what we generally refer to as bad news, It is only then that the person can become truly thrilled with when he learns of the grace of God that rescues him from what he deserves, that is the wrath of God. Put another way, to appreciate grace, we must first be aware of our guilt before God. This, my friends, is the whole point of Romans 1, 18 through 32. 
In fact, it is the whole point of Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, in which Paul lays out all the angles showing how the most wicked and evil of people deserve God's wrath, But if you think I'm not the most wicked and evil, I'm a sinful moralist, well, Paul will get after you in chapter 2. If you think, well, I'm a religious person and that's going to save me, Paul gets after that at the end of chapter 2. And Paul concludes Romans 3 identifying this most fundamental truth about humanity. What is one thing that we are to know is true about all humans in all times in every place? All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The point of our text before us, along with Romans 2, is to bring this bleakness, a a blackness that weighs heavy upon the sinner's head. The whole point is to make you feel the doom and the gloom and the weight of your sin. You may think in Romans 1 you've skated by, but Paul will take care of the rest of you later if you think you're okay. You are to know that you are a sinner, to know that you deserve the wrath of God. And with the weight of this black backdrop, then the glorious brilliance of the grace of God that brings salvation will shine brightly for you to behold. As we've worked our way through Romans 1, 18 through 32, we've been noting that before us are truly the indicators that a culture has, through its rejection of God and his ways, is under the real and present danger of God's wrath. It was interesting in just reading through Romans again this morning, and... uh, uh, I was noting, I, I'm just trying to remember my Bible reading as I was as reading through this. I, I want you to notice verse 21 where it says this, For even though they, the suppressors of the truth, verse 18, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Now notice what Paul says, so that they are without excuse. Then it goes, oh, excuse me, I, I got messed up it's actually not my bible that i had to grab a different one so everything's in the wrong place let me try this again for even though they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks but they became futile in their speculation so everything's about these suppressors of the truth now note what it says at the end of verse 21 and their foolish heart not their foolish hearts Not just speaking of individuals, although it includes individuals. It's that they have collectively, as a culture, as a society, sought to throw off God. And because of that, they are experiencing, even now, the wrath of God. History is filled with cultures that have rejected God. And every culture that has rejected God ends up in the same way, ruined, destroyed. If there is a history lesson in these verses, it is this. There is no nation, there is no culture, there is no society that will ever survive apart from God and his ways. In our text this morning, these final verses of Romans 1, we are presented with the inevitable conclusion of every culture that rejects the knowledge and the ways of God. These verses reveal to us 
really the, the death throes of a people who are hell-bent on living as if there is no God, even when they know there is a God. As a culture rejects God, it finds itself on a slippery downward slope, careening ever more rapidly and carelessly into the moral decay described in these verses that leads to their utter self-destruction. By way of a Christian worldview, Romans 1, verses 28 through 32, our text this morning, offers us a means by which we can understand the climate and the culture in which we live today. Such a message decrying the dark depravity of a godless culture will find itself, uh, find itself uh, never preached from liberal pulpits. Speaking of the, the wrath of God is not what the political pundits will be speaking about. They'll never proclaim it. It'll never be taught in secular schools and universities. No, such a message of doom and gloom is only revealed through the heralding of the full counsel of God's word. Such a teaching runs antithetical to everything this secular worldview offers and believes that man is in, the pro, in, the, in a, uh, uh, a state of progress. We talk about progressives and progressivism. We're not evolving, we're devolving. We're not becoming better, we're becoming worse. We're not becoming more glorious, we are becoming utterly depraved. Apart from the teaching, apart from teaching the wrath of God that is even now present as Paul presents us, as well as the future certainty for all those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the gospel of God, the good news that God has provided the only way of salvation, the only way of deliverance, the only rescue through faith in the person and work of his, of his son, Jesus Christ. Until we see the wrath of God that we deserve, we will not be as wondrous of the salvation that we have been provided. And this is why Paul writes in Romans 1.16, I hope you've had it memorized. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, for rescue, for deliverance from the wrath of God for everyone who does what? Believes. Let me remind you that the wrath of God may be defined, as we have up on the screen, God's intense displeasure against any and all unrighteousness, little white lies to the most horrific of deceits, anger in your heart towards a person, full-fledged murder, God's displeasure against any and all unrighteousness, against any and all who strive to suppress or hold down and pervert the truth of God, against any and all who exchange the truth of God for the lie that it's okay to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. I remind you of where we have been. You probably have this outline now, maybe memorized. So we've seen Paul's readiness to preach the gospel in verse 15, the realities of the gospel, verse 16, the remedy of the gospel that it provides for us, the righteousness of God as we believe, verse 17, the reality of God's wrath that it's a present real event taking place around us and is increasing in verse 18, the reasons for God's wrath because of the way humanity conducts itself 
And now we're looking at the results of God's wrath, verses 24 through 20, uh, uh, 32. Um, as we're making our way through this sixth point now, the results of God's wrath, we've already considered two of the first three points. That The result of God's wrath is that God says, you want to sin? Okay, I give you over to your own self-deception. You go ahead and exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We've seen that they're also given over to sexual deviancy to do that which is not even natural for humanity, that which is rather unnatural. And now this morning, we'll look at this final one, that this final result, God giving them over to what I've entitled this sweeping degeneracy, that culture given over to sweeping degeneracy. Before we look at this, let me point out the progression of uh, the digression that is taking place. In verse 25, we find that one of the markers of a culture that is under God's wrath is revealed in what they worship what they worship, and they're worshiping anything else but God. So let me, let me just help you with this. And it's really a sobering reality. As we were driving to church this morning, and I had to make a U-turn because what I haven't told you is that I already had to go back to the house once for forgetting something. That was before I had to send my wife back again. So I had to turn onto the street. It's Sunday morning. Where are all the cars? There's very few people out on a day like today. I had to wait for a few cars to go by. Then it was just clear sailing. I, I live off of, of New Hope, and so sometimes trying to turn left is a, it's an exciting thing. My mom has claw marks in the car. Do you realize that people who aren't going to church is a demonstration of the wrath of God? Do you realize that there are more uh, there that there that uh, there are so many empty seats in so many churches today? Truth of the matter is, if everybody decided if we had a revival in Rogers, we wouldn't have enough seats in all of our churches combined. But we can't even seem to fill the church the the chairs that we have. Do you realize that's an expression of the wrath of God? People who have now exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiping the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. So having been self-deceived by their sin, rather than worshiping this creator, the sinners exchange that truth for the lie that they can worship themselves, they can worship other people, they can worship nature. So when people, when we see people failing to worship God according to his word, know that they are worshiping the creature, and that is by definition an expression of the wrath of God Revealed right now. But this worship of the creature leads to the degrading of their bodies. So we move from their worship to their bodies as they give in to all forms of sexual immorality and sexual deviancy as we noted in Romans 1, 26 and 27. And this brings us to the text this morning. We move from the worship to the degrading of the bodies. And now we find in our text this morning the sweeping degeneracy that that floods a culture, and it's the result of God giving them over to their own depraved minds. So we have our worship, our bodies, and our minds. False worship leads to the degrading of the body, which leads to the depravity of the mind. 
one more observation before we begin, and that is this, and I hope that I can do this justice. Romans 1, 29 through 31, three verses, right? 29, 30, 31, represents a favorite form of writing employed by the Apostle Paul. And what is that form? It's a list. Paul loves lists. Line after line of descriptions that prove his point. In Paul's 13 letters, there are no less than 21 such lists. Sometimes these lists will contain only negative things, what we'll call vices, immoral, godless behaviors. Other times, Paul will provide a list of only positive things, what we will call the virtues, those moral and godly behaviors. Sometimes Paul will have both vices and virtues side by side or one after the other. So, for example, we read in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, 15 vices that we recall the deeds of the flesh. And you have them up there. If you have really good eyes, you can see them all. And that's followed immediately with what I think many of you are familiar with called the fruit of the spirit. And those are virtues, the virtues of the of the spirit at work in a person. Paul loves these kinds of, of lists. So there's nine virtues there. The longest of the virtues list is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, with some 11 positive traits listed and even expanded on. But uh, this is followed by the uh, uh, expanded on. But Paul seems to favor longer list when he speaks of vices you can see right there the vice list is longer than the positive list right there are 15 vice lists uh, in uh, Paul's writing uh, there's 15 here listed excuse me there's 15 vices listed here in, in Galatians 5 there are 18 vices listed in 2nd Timothy 3 1 through 13 and the winner by far the longest list of vices is found where do you think how about Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31? There are 21 vices listed in our text. It's as if Paul wants to make it quite clear that, that people who are given over to the pursuit of the depravity of their minds are as absolutely bad off as they can be. So my task this morning, and if you've been around, you're going to go, how is this going to work, Pastor? I have to cover 21 vices over the next 45 minutes. So I hope you're ready. These are expressions of the wrath of God. We've already considered the first two of the, these results of the wrath of God. Now we look at this last one, that God gives them over to sweeping degeneracy. And we can get our list up there. Oh, so there's the vice list. And if we can go to the next one, we'll put that up later for you. So we're going to consider verses eight, uh, 28 through 32, and we're going to see these four things. We're going to see the rejection of God, the retribution of God, the recklessness that comes as a result of being without God, and then the rebellion against God. So there's our outline. If you didn't get it written down, uh, sorry. We're, no, we're going to have it just in a moment. You'll just get it one at a time. So let's look at our first point as we uh, look at the results of God's wrath. Given over to sweeping degeneracy. We've read the text. There's a lot there, so I'm going to trust that you have, have seen all of this. Verse 28 begins with the third and final description where we are told that the penalty for choosing sin 
uh, by God is that God gives them up to their sinful ways. As we look at verse 28, we'll first note this rejection of God. Paul writes, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Paul is actually reminding his readers of what he has already pointed out in the previous verses, that those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness simply do not see it right. They do not like it. They do not consider the pursuit of the knowledge of God worthwhile. You've met people like that. You know, most of us were people like that at one time. Why would I invest myself in the knowledge of God? These are those who do not consider God worthy of their time, worthy of their effort. The verse says they do not see fit to acknowledge. That could be translated this way. They do not seek to retain. They do not want to keep hold of the knowledge of God. They are people who are throwing off anything and everything of God. Do we see that in our culture? They do not want anything concerning the knowledge of God. This is their rejection of God, their failure to glorify him as God or to give thanks to him. Verse 21, they're exchanging the truth of God for a lie to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. This is this not seeing it fit. We've all come across people like this so steeped in their sins that they become hostile. They can become abusive and will do anything to keep you from saying anything about God because they want to hate and forget God. I remember on one occasion my wife and I were speaking to a man in the park. Uh, We were at a park and and this guy had balloons and he came up to us and wanted to hand us a balloon. It's like, okay. And uh, so we took the opportunity to say, uh, you know, what are you doing? He said, I'm just trying to spread joy and happiness by giving people balloons. And I said, well, I could talk to you about somebody who can give you joy and happiness. And I started to try to talk to him about Jesus. And at first he was kind of listening, but the more I got into it and started sharing verses, he became rather agitated and hostile. And the last thing that we saw this man doing, uh, I can't even in my mind's eye remember where the balloons were, but he had his hands covered his ears and he was going la, 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 la as he moves away from us because he didn't want to hear anything about God. That's what we see at times. We see these people who they don't want to hear what they know to be true because it will condemn their souls. They want to reject God in his ways because they don't want to be reminded of him. And Paul's point is that for those who do not see fit, do not consider it proper, do not think it worthwhile to acknowledge the reality of God, that attitude of rejection will be met with what is our second point the retribution of god there's god you know we think about people we think someday these evil people will get what they deserve do you know that that's not the christian worldview part of what they're getting and they deserve they're getting right now and we know we're talking about the, the final and ultimate retribution of God that comes in the final day. But the Bible says that they're getting some of their, their retribution even right now. In verse 28, the second half, so God gives them over, it says, to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. This is the third and final God gave them over in our text. We've seen it in verse 24, 26, and now 28. 
This is God removing even more of his restraining grace. This is God allowing sinners to experience the fullness of their sin. You want to sin? Well, let me show you what will happen when I allow this to take place. This is to reveal the sinfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, the final stages of, a, of people's decline into sin. God allows their minds, it says, to become increasingly depraved. We use the word reprobate. It means worthless, rejected, morally and spiritually useless. That's what the word depraved speaks of. Now, I found it interesting that Paul is actually making a play on words in verse 28, and we can't see this in our English translation. Paul uses the root word doikamos. I know you're all excited about that. The word doikamos means worthwhile, acceptable, approved uh, in both the first half of this verse as well as the second half of the verse, only it's put in the negative, a doikamos, meaning not worthwhile, not approved, not acceptable. And so we could read this verse this way. And just as they did not see it worthwhile, doikimazo, to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to the tyranny of a mind that was not worthwhile. You don't think I'm worthwhile? I will allow you to do things that are utterly not worthwhile altogether. We could put it another way. We could say, and just as they did not determine to approve of or accept the knowledge of God any longer, God gave them over to an unapproved, unacceptable mind to do those things which are not proper. When people refuse to accept the knowledge of God, it is not because they are so enlightened. Isn't that what... Uh, I'm so enlightened, I know better than to believe all of that hocus-pocus, all of those miracles and stories of the Bible. I'm so enlightened. No, it's not because they're so enlightened. It's not because they're more sophisticated. It's not that they are so progressive. It's not because they're so secular that they do not need God. No, those who refuse to consider God worthwhile experience the wrath of God, which allows their minds to become increasingly useless, increasingly unacceptable, incredibly worthless morally and spiritually, and it results in them, Paul says, to do things which are not proper, those things which are not right, not godly, not useful, not worthwhile. When people tell you that they do not like God because of this or that reason, that they do not need God, that they do not believe in God, do you know what you're witnessing? It should break your heart because you know God has given them over to that kind of thinking. Now, God is still gracious. You share the gospel and the Holy Spirit goes to work and quickens the heart of some of those that you will share that with. And those depraved minds, what happens to them? A light turns on and they see things that they had not seen before. But apart from Christ, they are stuck in this dysfunctional uselessness. Their worldview leads them not to get closer to God, but further from God. That's the wrath of God. The suppressors of the truth of God come to believe that the knowledge of God is useless, and so God says, your minds, which were originally created, why were our minds created? Have you thought about this? Your mind is created, first and foremost, to contemplate and worship the living God. 
That's why God created you, to contemplate and to worship the living God. So now we find that those who reject the truth of God, those who now have these useless minds that was originally created to to intellectually and morally and spiritually to know what is good and right and to worship God, they are now dysfunctional and useless, spiritually speaking. The consequences of sin is God giving over such ones to this reprobate mind, a mind that fails the test of what God approves. This mind lacks the sound judgment morally and spiritually. It is a mind that produces, as we've read, futile, empty thinking. This is the mind that is not set on the things of God, but rather than things of the flesh, which Paul will later tell us leads to death. And such a mind will continually practice as a pattern of life those things which are, he says, not proper, not fitting, not approved in God's sight. And what does the Bible say about this? This is God's retribution. This is God giving them over to that. This is an indication that such people are under the wrath of God. But this brings us to our third point, the list, the list of lists. I've got it all color-coded for you. The recklessness without God, the recklessness of people who seek to live without God, verses 29 through 31, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, uh, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Uh, uh, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Again, the longest of all of Paul's lists highlights the vices, the obvious signs of a depraved mind, of a God-abandoned mind. Here are 21 additional sins that characterize those and a culture that is now under the judgment of God. As one of Paul's, as Paul's longest list, I still want to remind you that of all of his list, every time you read that and we look at this, it's like, did he cover everything? And I tell you, no. It's like I, I don't have enough room to list every potential sin. But here is a list of sins that, that while there are others that we might include, this one is exhaustive enough for us to convey a number of sins that enslave much of the godless world around us. The vice list is actually organized into three parts, and you can't quite see it there because I have more than three colors. But the first part is introduced to us with a phrase. And note, note the phrase, being filled. And being filled corresponds with four markers. The, the verb being filled is in the present tense. It tells us this is the way this culture continually and, and will always be true of this culture that does not see fit to acknowledge God. This verbal phrase, being filled, is followed with four words that all have the same ending in the Greek. And that's why I put them up there. Uh, adakia, we have pomaria, we have uh, pleinaxia, we have uh, kakia. They all end with that last sound. That's by design. Paul wanted those words grouped together. Each of these words are modified by the word uh, all. They're filled with all unrighteousness, all wickedness, all greed, and all evil. It's interesting because it indicates to us that the culture is not simply tainted with a little bit of something. 
It's not like it's just popping up in little regions. No, this is pervasive. It goes through all of a culture. It is a sin-saturated culture. The word unrighteousness there is to be is is to be opposed to what is right and what is just. When we see the the justice system of our own country that is obviously corrupt, obviously has different levels, and it depends on your status as to what kind of justice you will receive, that's injustice. That's not uh, that's not right. That's unrighteousness. It's opposed to what is right and just. Wickedness, which is poneria, is actually from the word from which we get our English word pornography. It speaks of sexual immorality, of fornication, of any and all kinds of sexually immoral acts, whether they be adultery, prostitution, pedophilia, or others that are even worse. It speaks of a wicked mischievousness, a a hatred that seeks to harm others. Do you know that pornography, by its definition, doesn't do anything but demonstrate a hate for others? Oh, but I like what I see. But it's actually a form of the wrath of God by which you are not loving your neighbor as you ought. You are actually demonstrating a hatred for them. The word greed speaks of an insatiable lust and a longing for more and more. And the word evil speaks of having ill will or spite for someone. It it speaks of being maliciously minded. You just want to see somebody hurt or harmed. Now, it's unlikely that Paul intends to make hard distinctions between these words, if you're familiar with a Venn diagram with overlapping circles. It's not like there's just these unrighteous things over here and way over here there are evil things. No, all of these things overlap one another. And what Paul is simply trying to do is trying to use as many words as he can to describe just how bad off this culture truly is. They all represent these four words, nuances of sins, but they overlap. Paul is using these words for effect. He's describing for us the the wickedness, the depth of the wickedness of human beings in the most comprehensive of ways. This is total depravity. If you're filled with all unrighteousness, that's total depravity. All wickedness, total depravity. All evil, that's how bad off. A culture that begins to be characterized by these things. As we see these things manifest more and more, we recognize that this is an indication of the wrath of God revealed. Well, the second set of markers are five words, and they all are connected. They're all modified by the word full. You see full of envy. I have different colors here, and I'll tell you why. But full of envy, full of murder, full of strife, full of deceit, and full of Malice. So these five words, Paul actually is sticking together. Uh, And this is, again, it's characterizing that word full there is an adjective that indicates the state of being that thoroughly characterizes the, the person or thoroughly characterizes the culture. After Thanksgiving dinner, you've stuffed yourself with turkey and mashed potatoes and cranberry sauce and pumpkin pie and what will most people say at the end of the meal I am full I'm full up I I can't even take in 
anymore. And what I need to do at that point is go sleep it off, right? And we blame it on the turkey. There's got to be some chemical compound there in that turkey that makes me sleep. But the idea of being full like that, that's the idea. A culture that is given over to a depraved mind is full of these characteristics. One of the early church fathers, John uh, Christostom, noted that people are not just wicked. He said they are full of wickedness, and thus wickedness extends to everything they are and do. If you are in Christ today, such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. A culture given over to the depraved mind is, Paul says, is full of envy, which is ill will. They're full of jealousy and spite. Such a culture is full of murder, a word that simply means to slay or take another human life. And we are in the midst of a culture of death. And we are so used to it, it hardly twinges our souls. We're so excited at one level because the Supreme Court overruled Roe versus Wade, but we do not mourn 60 million murders that were taken where we took innocent lives. And we're not done yet. It's still happening. And you can do it through the mail. This is a culture that's under the wrath of God. I hear people say, well, we've killed all these babies and, and, and the wrath of God is coming. No, this is the revelation of the wrath of God. We're killing our own. We're being cannibalistic in a sense. We are full of murder. And this is the judgment of God. Paul says such people are full of strife. What is strife? It means to be in a state of constant contention and debate. I think that's the description of Washington, D.C. But it's not just Washington, D.C. I intentionally have a Twitter account. I guess I have to call it X or whatever it is now. And I intentionally follow people that have way differing viewpoints than me. And, 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 I, and I follow people that kind of have my mindset, and I see the arguments that are going back and forth, and it's like, I don't know how any of these people could ever get along. Although I do know how they could get along. It's called the Lord Jesus Christ. People are full of contention and debate to be at odds with one another for the sake of sometimes just being at odds with one another. That's all they, they just want to be contentious. We see it in our politics. I remember, I'm old enough now to remember a time when, when Republicans and Democrats would reach across the aisle and they would come up with some kind of compromise that would be in the best interest of the American people. Not so now. Not so now. Such a culture is full of strife. Such a culture is also, Paul says, full of deceit. The word deceit means that they are into trickery. They are into guile. They are crafty. They, they are people that are constantly trying to manipulate people into thinking what they want them to think. Well, does that sound like maybe our culture, mainstream media, propaganda, things that you just, 
You're looking at it, that's obviously not true, but it's being communicated, and people are saying, well, this must be true, because I heard it on such and such a station. I won't name names. We live in a propaganda culture, one that is absolutely deceitful, one communicating things about our health, our politics, our sexuality, and a host of other things that are simply not true. And beloved, you and I need to be awake to this. We need to be aware of this, and we need to see it for what it is. It is the wrath of God revealed on our culture. If we get that mindset, I think we might be in a better position to say, I have a remedy for this. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the rescue from the wrath of God, if you believe. Finally, Paul says that such a culture is full of malice. The word of malice speaks of possessing bad character. Malice is related to the word evil in that we just considered, and so it, it actually speaks of being mischievous. Now, when I looked up the word mischievous, I, I had the wrong picture. Mischievous, that's Dennis the Menace, right? Some kid that's just trying, he's not really trying to hurt anybody, but he just seems to always get into trouble and cause trouble for everybody else. This isn't the Dennis the Menace kind of behavior, innocently causing trouble. Mischievousness, by definition, again, we said this just a moment ago, it's actually a hatred of others. And therefore, it is the pursuit of causing harm to others. Well, the third and final set of markers of a culture that is experienced in the wrath of God is introduced to us with the words, they are. I have them in white up there. They are. And then we have these other verses here. This is because the way Paul wrote this list, he's appealing back to verse 28, and he's reminding that he's still speaking. He's reminding us that he's still speaking about them, the them in verse 28 whom God has given over to a depraved mind. Them, they are, is the idea. And God says they are, the word of God says that they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. While these are all generally grouped together in Paul's Greek, they are yet broken down into three more categories. So let me show you, and that's why we have the three different colors. You got purple, got orange, and you got gray. That's what you need to know what the colors are. First, we see what I'll call the the um, the publicity of depravity. This very public display of depravity. Depravity likes to make known or even just make up shortcomings for the sins of others. Therefore, those of depraved minds, Paul says, are gossips. What is a gossip? I think that King James says they're whisperers. They're whispering things into people's ears. They may be true. They may not be true. But they're whispering them. Why are they doing this? They are these tail bearers communicating things about others that are absolutely no one else's business. One of the biggest problems I see in TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and even uh, entertainment shows, they're telling us things about people that we just really don't need to know. And they make news out of it. And we're glued to our TVs, especially if it's some celebrity. 
I want to know what they're doing. I want to know how they did it and who they did it with and how they, you know, how they accomplished it and all these things. Gossip usually is also mischievous, intending to belittle or harm the reputation of others. Have you heard? Have you heard? Let me tell you what so-and-so did. It's meant to stir something in. In many ways, again, much of our 24-hour news cycles and entertainment shows are nothing but harbingers of gossip. Do you know what the opposite of gossip is? Gossip could tell you something that's true. What's the opposite of gossip? According to Proverbs 11.13, the opposite of gossip is being trustworthy and faithful. We read in Proverbs 11.13, listen to this, he who goes about as a talebearer, a gossip, reveals secrets. But in contrast to the one who reveals secrets, he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. If there's an application for us right now today, it'd be don't be going off and talking about what others have done if that's not any of your business to communicate. I don't care if you know it. I don't care if you think it's exciting. It's wrong to communicate something, particularly if your intention is to paint some kind of bad picture, paint that person in some bad light. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secret, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Well, linked to the gossip, these two are the same, are, are linked together. Those of a depraved mind are also slanderers, or as the Amplified Bible so interestingly puts it, they are secret backbiters. Now, the picture of that's not very pretty. Don't be biting my back. I know we we understand the picture. These are people who, again, for the harm of others and for the benefit of their own self, speak maybe half-truths or outright lies about others. Literally, a slanderer is one who speaks down, the Greek says, speaks down against others. Or we might say, bad-mouths people. When you are with a friend you're with someone with the church, the moment that you hear somebody say something bad about somebody, you should stop them. You should stop them. First of all, I don't want to hear it. Second of all, you have no business saying such things. We need to be careful about what we say concerning others, to others, and what we will say about others publicly. A culture whose minds have been given over to depravity, Paul says, you're going to see gossip and slander everywhere. I dare you to turn on the news this afternoon. What will you see? Gossip and slander. This is not to be true of us as God's people. Well, the second group in this last set, we see the pride of depravity, and it's in orange, the pride of depravity. The next six expressions seem to be employed by Paul in order to build this shocking depth of just how evil manifests itself. And Paul pulls no punches as he begins with the most shocking of all evil that the creature would be able to to muster up. And what is it? They are haters of God, haters of the one who created them, haters of the one who has done everything, haters of the one who opens his hands and satisfies the desire of every living thing, haters 
of the one who has provided their salvation if they would but believe. They hate the creator. Haters of God. Those who desire to do nothing with, have nothing to do with, and are hostile towards God and his ways and his word. But they're not only haters of God, they are also insolent, it says. It could be translated as being violent or brutal. A word that means being in an in, being an injurious insulter. It could be translated as a maltreater of others, and you can maltreat them physically or mentally or emotionally. And we see this taking place. And when we see this, let me just back up and remind you, what are you seeing? The wrath of God. This is God letting people do what they want to do. You're seeing the sinfulness of sin. You're seeing the depravity of sin. And you're seeing God say, there's what happens when you live without me. You will be an injurious insulter. In addition, they are arrogant, a word that means literally to be above others. It speaks of being haughty or proud, thinking of yourself more than others. I'm better than others. Paul also describes them as boastful, and that word speaks of being loudmouths or braggers. And the point is the obvious self-importance and rudeness of those who are convinced by their own sinfulness that they are something when they're nothing, that they are superior when they're actually in the throes of death itself. In addition to these four, Paul connects two more vices that are both two-word phrases in the Greek. We see that they are evil inventors, or we translate it as inventors of evil. I've been thinking about this phrase. Inventors of evil. You see a culture trying to come up with new and better ways to sin. Just when you think you've seen it all. I mean, this humanity's been practicing this for a long time, and yet we continually come up with more and more perverse ways in which to express evil. And there are those in the culture that invent it. The, the idea of this uh, this word uh, invent here it means to scheme, to contrive. It can mean to discover new and better ways of being bad. You thought this was bad, try this one. And they promote it like this is some accomplishment. This is followed up with parent disobeyers. Two words, but disobedient parents. And that word disobedient, it, it means to not be agreeable with what is said or commanded. So we call it disobedience. Not to be agreeable with that which is said or commanded. We might aptly call them breakers of the fifth commandment. They are rebellious to their parents' God-given authority, refusing to do what their parents say. And they are unpersuaded by their parents' wisdom and their parents' arguments. God gave them their parents, but when they have a depraved mind, he gives them over to be disobedient. And so if you have a child that you're seeing constantly expressing disobedience, you want to pray and pray that God changes that. Why? Because it's an expression of God's wrath. 
we see a culture that this is more and more. It's not just that we see people being disobedient, children disobedient to their parents. Now we have teachers and institutions encouraging our children to disobey their parents. Don't tell your parents this. Don't let don't do what your parents have asked you to do. They don't know anything. Children, run for your life. Reminds me of the famous quote, and I quote, Teenagers, tired of being harassed by your parents? Act now, move out, get a job, pay your own way while you still know everything. Sadly, that's somewhat the natural inclination of a teenager to want to be what? This this grown-up coupled with our culture's providing all sorts of influences against the parents, and it's causing this very kind of attitude. So as a church, let's pray for the children of our church. Let's pray for our parents. As parents, pray for your children and teach them the way that they should go. Well, this brings us to the third and final set of markers, what I'll call the profundity of depravity, and that's in the gray, the profundity. And these last four are separated from the other eight, from the other eight are again noted in the grammar. Paul is using Greek words, and I have them up there for you so you can see something that's true of all those words. They all start with what letter? A, which is the prefix in the Greek for no or not or without. And so we have these, these four words that are, are signifying that these kinds of people given over to a depraved mind are without something. What are they without? They are without understanding. That means being without moral and spiritual sensitivity. We can say that these are those who are being senseless or foolish. They are without understanding. Second, they are without faithfulness. They are without covenantal faithfulness is really the idea. They are covenant breakers. They break their promises. And so we translate it as they're untrustworthy. You don't trust them to keep their word. They're promise breakers. We see the next one, that they are without love. The word uh, love for there speaks of this natural affection. They're without love towards their own family members. This word also speaks of having an unforgiving spirit that can be translated then as being heartless or without affection, describing someone who lacks positive feelings for others. And the final one, that they are without mercy. They are without pity, without uh, 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 compassion. They are cruel, callous, and unwilling to be merciful to those who are in need. As Paul was careful to use the same prefix to start each one of these four final words, we can mimic that, only we can't put it on the front. It doesn't work as well. We, uh, and we can do it the way I said. You can say without understanding, without faithfulness, without love, without mercy. Or we could say it this way. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, merciless. That would be the way that Paul's trying to link all of these together. This is the recklessness. This is what happens when God gives a culture over to a depraved mind. And it all climaxes with our last point, the rebellion against God, verse 32. And although they, who are the they? 
They're the day that practice all of these things. Who are the they? They are the ones that worship and uh, exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Who are the they? These are the suppressors of truth, verse 18, who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And as if everything in this list were not enough, Paul makes mention then of one final indictment. This is a charge concerning those who reject God. Paul tells us that they, although they know God, there are no atheists, there are no agnostics. Paul has been very clear on that. They are not ignorant of God. They are not unaware of God's displeasure against all the vices already mentioned. Paul says they know completely. They know with absolute certainty of the righteous and just ordinance, it says, the verdict of God, this verdict that they can sense in their own conscience. And what is the verdict? The verdict is this, that every human knows that those who practice, it's in the present tense, those who continually practice, habitually practice, constantly carry out and commit such things, all that is contained in this list and more, that those who do such things, here you go, they are worthy. Worthy, deserving of death. This is where it's all headed. If you're talking to people, you say, you're, you're thinking that you are enjoying all of these things now. You're thinking that you're moving yourself ahead. But notice where it ends. And I don't even have to convince you because you know it's true in your heart that those who practice such things are worthy of death. The ultimate consequence I'd have you note that this is the first time in this letter that Paul has used the word death, and it won't be the last time. He, we could summarize what he says here with the very familiar words of Romans 6.23, which is what? For the wages of sin is death. That's just a commentary on what we've just read here. The wages of sin is death. It's the ultimate consequence the punishment of death is the final and sure expression of God's wrath against sin. And it means that we're telling people, as you look at this list, the, this is a list of the markers of a person or people that are dying. As a pastor, I've been in the hospital a number of times to see the progression of death. And there are times when a doctor has pulled me aside and said, you need to prepare the family because they're not seeing it yet. But I could see it. This is a culture that shows all of the markers that it's in the throes of death. And while that's heavy, we stand with something that can deliver us. The gospel of Jesus Christ. But this all leads to, this part leads to this great rebellion against God. We hear about insurrections these days. This is the great insurrection. Worse than January 6th. This is an ill-conceived human revolution against God for all those 
who think that, uh, that are living in any of the manners already described that bring about death, such a depraved mind not only do the same things, it says, they practice the same vices, but also in contrast or in addition to their own practice of these things, what do they do? They give hearty approval. They agree with others who are engaged in that same behavior. They approve of it. They think it worthwhile. And here then is the full extent of the rejection and rebellion and insurrection of God. The judgment of God is known, and yet people are encouraged to pursue godlessness anyway. I've heard people say it this way. I know I'm going to hell, but I'm going to, have, I'm going to just party until I get there. It's not a party. Then they'll say, I'm going to have a party in hell. No. It's not the way it works. How do you know it doesn't work that way? Because the word of God tells me what it's like. You don't know if you don't read the word of God. These are those who encourage others to pursue such godlessness, and then they commit a greater evil in that they, they, they spread this evil and are complicit in the destruction, not only of themselves because they are doing it, but they're saying, come along and do it with me. So then they stand before God, and God says, you're condemned because you did this sin or these sins, and I condemn you further because you drug all of these other people with you. That's not the conversation I wish to have with God. Do you realize that what you're reading here is a violation of the second of the great commandments? First, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second, like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. That is, seek the highest good and the well-being of another person, that which is right in the sight of God, and yet the hatred of God is so germane that people are willing to risk future judgment in order to carry out not only their own evil desires, but to drag others with them. However intense we may find Paul's description of a depraved culture, what we find here in verse 32 is the most devastating of all. There's a phrase that you're familiar with that says, misery loves company, right? Come join me. Borrowing from that construction, we can say this, sinfulness loves company. The most damning condition of human depravity is not merely the personal practice of sin, no matter how much uh, one's personal sin demonstrates both the abandonment of God and their abandonment to sin. Rather, the most damning condition of human depravity is that alongside of that personal practice of sin is the supporting and encouraging of others to do the same thing. Put another way, sinners are not only bent on damning themselves, but they congratulate others in doing those things that they know will bring about the damnation of others. There's no love there. Those who live apart from God and God's ways do not love, they hate. They hate others and they hate themselves. They celebrate and support the, and approve of that which they know merits the wrath of God. Beloved, sinfulness is most incited when it meets with no inhibition and no disapproval of others. And when there is a collective of non-dissenting approval of such sin, everybody says, well, everybody else is doing it, so I'm just going to do it. 
Well, as we close out Romans 1, we can see that this list of vices has really reached its peak. Here we see the full manifestation of a people going from bad to worse. Here we find sinners that are not simply going headlong into sin themselves, but they are regularly consenting to and taking pleasure in others who practice it. And one of the pinnacles of rebellion against God, one of the clear manifestations of the revealed wrath of God is when people affirm evil of others and take delight in that which is only going to bring death. So what? What does this mean today? Let me close with just, I know I went a little long. I had 21 things to cover, didn't I? You should be amazed that I got that far. Now let me just share with you five applications very quick. Let us be thankful for God or to God for rescuing us from his wrath through the wrath-absorbing work of his son on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, all of the wrath that any, of, any one of these sins deserved, Christ absorbed it fully. Second, let us be diligent in prayer to plead with the Lord to save those who are currently under the wrath of God. When you read this, don't just say, oh, I'm so glad that's not me. You could start there. But then you need to say, what, where's my neighbor? What about this family member? And start pleading with the Lord to save them. Third, let us plead with the Lord to enable us to mortify sin by the power of the Spirit as we realize that all sin, even the sins of the saints, displeases God. Your sin, although paid for, covered by the blood of Jesus, is no excuse to continue in sin. Oh, Jesus paid it all. Yes, he did. But he didn't pay it all for you to continue in it. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound, Paul will say later. And what did Paul say? May it never be. Fourth, let us always remember that there is no such thing as atheists or agnostics. All are very much aware that there is one true living God who made all things, and therefore all are without excuse. When somebody says, I don't believe it, and I don't believe your Bible, okay, well, then what's your authority? Science? No, more science has been, more real science has been proven by the Bible. Just, just saying. Fifth and finally, if you have not received the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, this passage should cause you to flee at once from the wrath of God, which is both present and coming. Christ is the only Savior of sinners, the only one who can rescue us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And if you are uncertain of what that means, and I suspect there are some even here or listening that you do not know what this means exactly, well, please come and talk to me or uh, somebody that you know who invited you to talk about and get this thing cleared up so that you can know today that you are no longer under the wrath of God. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in one place and one place only in Christ Jesus. If you come to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you believe, you can be delivered from Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its comprehensive nature, even recognizing that there's so much more that could have been said by the apostle concerning the wrath of God. I pray that this is sufficient for us to 
as believers to recognize what we have been saved from, to delight all the more in the greatness of our salvation. We pray that this is sufficient for those who are struggling with knowing, do I need to follow Jesus? That we've laid the black backdrop of the utter sinfulness of sin and what it deserves. And now we just pray that they will not be ashamed of the gospel, that they will know it's the power of God to deliver and to rescue them from the wrath of God that they deserve if they will but believe on Jesus Christ. May we all come to Jesus. For those who know you, may we come to Jesus to to know him more, to know him better, to serve him better. And those who do not yet know you, may they come to Jesus in faith, believing that he is their wrath absorber. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.